I really want the reader to sort of feel what the body is feeling in that moment rather than imposing a kind of external objectifying gaze, right? I really am not interested in what the reader thinks Malaya looks like. I want the reader to think about what Malaya's body is feeling. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about anti-fat bias, diet culture, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Solsmith. Today, I'm chatting with the brilliant Mecca Jamila Sullivan. Originally from Harlem, Mecca is now an associate professor of English at Georgetown University and lives in Washington, D.C. She is also the author of three books, all of which have been wildly acclaimed. The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora, Blue Talk and Love, and most recently, the novel Big Girl. Big Girl was a New York Times editor's choice, winner of the 2023 Next Generation Indie Book Award for First Novel. It was also named a Best Summer Books Pick by Time, Essence, Vulture, Ms., Glamour UK, Goodreads, Booklist, She Reads, The Root, Library Reads, and I think The Universe. It was also one of my very favorite books that I read in 2022 and probably of all time. It is an utter delight to talk about writing, fatness, and bodies with Mecca. So here is Mecca Jamila Sullivan, but first, a quick break. So I want to pause and tell you about the Burnt Toast Bookshop. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me shout out my beloved independent bookstore, Split Rock Books, a million times. Split Rock is owned by my friends Heidi and Michael Bender, and they have the most perfect shop cat named Georgie. And they are now the official hosts of the Burnt Toast Bookshop. To be clear, this is not a real brick-and-mortar bookstore. But it is its own official section over on their website, splitrockbks.com, where you can find every book we've ever recommended on the podcast. This includes every author I've interviewed, from Angela Garbez to Crystal Maldonado to Aubrey Gordon and Mecca Jamila Sullivan, who you're about to hear from in this episode. And it also includes collections of picture books, parenting books, books on puberty and aging, and every other topic that comes up here. And if you order your copy of Fat Talk from Split Rock, you can use the code FATTALK at checkout to take 10% off your order of anything in the Burnt Toast Bookshop. They ship everywhere in the United States, and they are the only place where you can get a book signed with any inscription you want by me. So this is just a win-win-win. It's a chance to support an amazing independent bookstore that gives so much to my community to get yourself or someone you love a signed copy of Fat Talk plus a 10% discount on a huge list of other incredible books. And we are always updating the shop. Click the link in your episode description or go to splitrockbks.com slash bookstore. Thank you so much for supporting independent body liberation journalism and independent bookstores. I always think of Big Girl as a novel about women, about bodies, about queer people and the paths we take across generations to make space for ourselves and the world. And, you know, it follows a big Black girl through her coming of age in Harlem in the 1990s. And so honestly, a large part of what inspired me to write this novel was living an experience very similar to the main character. Her name was Malaya. In my own experience growing up as a fat kid and as a big teenager and as a fat woman, you know, there are so many sort of elements of those experiences that intersect with major conversations about race, about gender, about class, about sexuality. And so it was really important to me from that standpoint to sort of bring all of those together in this work of fiction. In many ways, it's the book that I sort of have always wanted to write. Yeah. You know, it was the first book that I imagined writing, even though it was the third book that I ended up publishing. 
So it really has sort of been with me for a long time from a very personal place. One big myth that Big Girl explodes just right off the bat is this idea that thinness and the pursuit of weight loss is only pushed on white girls by their thin mm-hmm. white mothers, that whiteness somehow owns disordered eating, that this only happens mm-hmm. in affluent white communities. What does the thin ideal represent to Malaya and to her mother and her grandmother who are mm-hmm. really involved in her body? That. Black people and Black communities don't experience that phobia and weight bias and that the kind of priorities of thinness are not internalized in Black communities and Black families. It's absolutely a myth. And I think it's a really dangerous myth. We're talking about power, right? And if we're thinking about how thinness is a centerpiece of several forms of power, including, you know, the power of normative gender, right? And the notion that like a normatively gendered body also has to sort of look a certain way. It has to achieve a certain body weight, right? Class, of course, you mentioned affluence, right? This idea that thinness is a kind of sign of a class mobility of an affluence also related to power. So in that sense, it only makes sense that then disempowered communities are internalizing those same ideals, right? It's not like there's some sort of parallel world where Black communities have access to power outside of the sort of dominant American power structure. Mm -hmm. Thinking about it structurally in that way it makes sense. It's just sort of sound logic. One of the things that fiction has the power to do is really distill that and make it personal, right? Sort of tell the story. And so for Malaya, you know, my hope is that we see those structures play out in her life in this sort of personal way that perhaps is maybe even more relatable or legible for some readers. For her, she's this little girl. She has no language for social power structures, Right. right? But what she knows is that her mother and her grandmother are really obsessed with thinness in this way that just doesn't make sense to her. Mm-hmm. She sees food as a source of joy, especially early on. Joy, pleasure, sort of escape, right? It's comfort, fun. She yeah. Comfort, exactly. She loves the colors of food. She loves the smell, right? Sort of a sensory experience of pleasure, joy, and freedom. And yet she's very much aware that her mother and her grandmother are looking at food very differently and are looking at their bodies very differently. And she comes to see that that is informed by this white sin ideal, Mm -hmm. right? That is, as you said, very much tied to a kind of class mobility and class ascendancy. As she's coming of age, as teenagers do, part of what she has to do is sort of parse out where all of these ideals around, around thinness and around bodies come from and figure out sort of what parts of the messaging she's getting around her own body she wants to hold on to and what she wants to reject. Right. And so to my mind, that has a lot to do with sort of how she comes into her own identity, right? Is sort of like navigating those structures and again, figuring out what she wants to say goodbye to, right? Like what are these family legacies she needs to just decide or not for her? I thought a lot as I was reading it how it's all tangled up with their love for her as well, right? They're trying to protect her. They're trying to keep her body safe in a way. Yeah, totally. I mean, and isn't that always the thing, right? Sort of how we define safety especially when we're talking about multiple generations of women in families, this notion of safety and sort of how we protect the younger generations of people in our families, it's always kind of messy and complicated, right? Because of course, you know, we're only capable of offering protections that we can imagine. And I think for Malaya's grandmother, for example, she does think that, you know, the way to protect her own daughter and her granddaughter is to kind of enforce this rigid ideal of, you know, body shape and size, right? Mm -hmm. And through diet culture. Mm -hmm. And she, of course, imagines that she's protecting them from 
heartbreak, from job discrimination, right? From all kinds of things that, you know, that she has experienced in her own life and that are real to her. Similarly, Malaya's mother, I think, she believes that she's protecting Malaya from all of those things and from the ridicule of her grandmother, right? Right. So there's this interesting sort of compounding. Back up against the protecting, yes. Exactly. And so again, Malaya has to sort of figure out what she actually wants protection from and how to protect herself. And I think part of what enables her to do that in a different way is that she's also aware that she's got an inner world to protect. And that's something that is clear to her because of that process we were talking about earlier, where she wants to retain her sense of joy Mm -hmm. and her sense of pleasure in food and also just like in her body in general. There's something that very early on she knows is not quite right about the messaging she's getting around food and body. And so though she doesn't know exactly how, she knows that there's something internal to her that she wants to protect. And that opens up, I think, another space for her to at least sort of look for other ways of engaging her body and engaging food. And it helps her be able to understand the harm that's embedded in their protection. Exactly. There's so much truth in all of them. I mean, they're right. It is easier to be in the world in a thin body. And yet she has the agency to make these different choices. The book also tells the story of gentrification and the cultural erasure in Harlem in the 90s. The writing of place in this book is so beautifully done. You're just right there in that neighborhood walking the streets. It's it's wonderful. And there are lots of parallels between the attempts to control and shrink Malaya's body and the way Harlem itself as a community is being shrunk. I see Malaya's body and the neighborhood as sort of constantly in conversation with one another over the course of the novel, right? When we meet Malaya, again, she has this sort of fierce determination to like hold fast to who she is, even as she's constantly growing and changing. She's eight years old when we meet her, right? The family has actually newly moved to Harlem. So she's encountering herself through the music of the neighborhood, through the food of the neighborhood, through the visual landscape, right? And she's a visual artist. So she's taking all of this in as kids do, but I think she's got a particular keen sense of the meanings and the importance of the sensory world. And so she's taking all of this in. The neighborhood is an important part of her sort of identity at that age. And as she begins to change, as teenagers do, so does the neighborhood, right? So suddenly, as you said, there are external forces that are coming in sort of changing the feel of the neighborhood, changing the landscape of the neighborhood, and absolutely trying at least to shrink the neighborhood. At the same time, of course, there's an effort of resistance, right? So there are community groups that are insisting on claiming Black diasporic culture as the center of the neighborhood's identity, and that plays out in the landscape as well. And so in some ways, watching the kind of the onslaught of gentrification and then Harlem's internal resistance to gentrification is part of Malaya's own sort of struggle, or at least part of what catalyzes her eventual coming into her sense of self, right? That yeah. she's constantly observing the neighborhood, observing the neighborhood sort of efforts to resist and push back. And of course, on a macro level, we know the connection between diet culture and gentrification. It's similar to what we were just talking about, this idea of a kind of like white hegemonic cultural dominance, right? There's a particular ideal of sort of who is in power, who should retain power, sort of for whom what resources are are meant, right? And, you know, if we're talking about the resources of a neighborhood or the kind of inner resources of a body, 
there is an ideal that's external. It's whoever it is, it's not Malaya. It's not the little black girl, mm-hmm. right? Who should have power in this space, even when the space is her own body. Right. Watching Harlem's resistance to gentrification helps Malaya sort of see and recognize maybe an internal power within herself. It's not a simple path. And certainly the story of Harlem, right? It, <laughs> it bears this out, yeah. right? That it's not, it's not, you can't just will gentrification away in the same way that you can't just will diet culture away. But, you know, shifting that locus, right? So that for Malaya, she can decide that she herself is at the center of her world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, arguably, I'm, you know, born and raised in Harlem. For many of us Harlemites, there's still that sense of sort of, we are really what Harlem is, yeah. even if it doesn't necessarily look that way to the outside perspective. Even though the Starbucks and all of the chains yes. have arrived, yes. Yes, um, that's right. It's so fascinating how a coming-of-age novel has the power to kind of really speak to these sort of bigger questions that we honestly all need to be asking. So I'm just, I'm so happy to have a chance to talk that with you. It was the first time I'd thought about those two concepts in relation together, and it just felt like such an important metaphor to explore because a mistake we make when we talk about diet culture is if we only talk about it in terms of bodies, right? Because it's this bigger thing. It's related to white supremacy. It's related to all these power structures. And kind of the same with gentrification. It becomes this thing about like, we don't want the Starbucks and there's a bigger system here that we need to be talking about and dismantling. I also just absolutely love how you write about Malaya's body. It's also very visceral and messy and raw. And I think writing about fatness can go so wrong, like so very, very wrong and become fetishizing or objectifying. Yeah, there's the whale. Too many examples. We won't name them. Too many. We don't need to relive them. (laughs) But yeah, I'd just love to hear how you think about writing bodies. As a writer, I tend to be drawn to voice and description. And so for me, I think in some ways, I almost want to say it's an advantage, but it's also a, a real challenge, right? I tend to write from sort of a deep place within the experiences of my characters or sometimes a deep place within the setting. But either way, I just sort of, I think a lot through Again, sensory detail and description. So when I'm writing bodies, you know, I'm thinking of writing sort of from within the body, by which I mean, I'm thinking first of how the body feels. I'm thinking about sort of how the body sort of resonates for the character before I'm thinking about how it might look or, you know, how it might smell or that, that kind mm-hmm, of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm centering the body itself. And in the case of, you know, like Malaya's where part of what she has to do over the course of the novel is find the language to describe her body, right? right? And so for me as the writer, it's important that the narrator sometimes supply the language that Malaya doesn't have. Mm. And so that's sort of how I approached writing about her body. For example, when she's experiencing the pleasure and the comfort, as you said, of eating, right? The language may slow down because she herself is feeling more at ease and more at peace and there's a calm, you know what I mean? But then when she's thinking about the excitement of French fries, right, the writing might sort of pick up and it becomes more vibrant. I really want the reader to sort of feel what the body is feeling in that moment rather than imposing a kind of external objectifying gaze, right? I really am not interested in what the reader thinks Malaya looks like. I want the reader to think about what Malaya's body is feeling. You know what I mean? Yes. And so it ends up, you know, and again, this is why I feel like writing, you know, from the perspective of someone who's drawn to description is an advantage in a way. I love that stuff anyway. I could write, and the first, so the very first draft of this novel was like 
500 pages. Oh, wow. And it was almost all like description. You oh, know what I mean? Because I to, just like loved it. Was it hard oh, to cut? So hard. So hard. <laughs> so hard. So hard. So I mean, hard. Because I mean, you know what? I think to your point too, it's like, this is what we don't get to see, right? We don't get to, and this is why, really why I wanted to write this novel is like, living in a fat body is such a sort of beautiful and complicated, again, sensory experience that like, we just don't see often enough the complexities of all of the things that bodies in general mm-hmm. experience, but fat bodies in particular. Yes. And so I really enjoyed in that first job, just kind of like lavishing in all of it, in the pleasure and the desire, like the yearnings and the longing and the pain. You know, mm-hmm. I felt that it was important too to sort of let the reader in to some of those physical and psychic experiences of fat embodiment in a way that like language makes possible. So why not kind of go for it? I think you writing the 500 page version is what enables this version to feel so fully, you know what I mean? Like you really got in there and even if we don't get all of it, I feel for you because I I hate cuttings. I'm also an overwriter and it's so so hard if you write long. (laughs) And then they're like, we we need a little less. And you're like, do we though? I feel like we need it all. (laughs) I know, yes, yeah. And I mean, you do, right? I feel like you, at least as the author, I don't know if you feel this way, I feel like, yeah, I definitely needed to write that first version. Because as you said, like, that's how I really got to know yeah. the character and her relationship with her body. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. So, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And you feel it. It really comes through in how embodied she feels and that you are in her body with her, not looking at her body, not objectifying her. I felt the same way about how you wrote the mom's body or like the dad mm. when he's sick. You embody all yeah. of them in a really, the grandmother's physicality yeah. is really powerful as well. Yeah, all of it just gave me a lot to think about because, again, I think so often when I'm reading a book that's attempting to do this, you see when it fails because you see when yeah. the author starts thinking of their character as an object and exactly loses that connection. Exactly. And, you know, from a craft standpoint, I think when I talk with students about the one of the things I always say is sort of, even if you're using an omniscient narrator, one of the great things about an omniscient narrator is that they do have access to the sensibilities of each character, mm-hmm. right? If you ground the description in the sensibility of the character, you're going to get a fresher and more nuanced perspective. Malaya happens to always be, or quite often at least, be thinking about both color and food, right? Mm-hmm. She's not going to give a kind of familiar or an overly familiar, you know, simile or metaphor when she's describing somebody that she's looking at because almost everything that she's seeing is filtered through either like the vibrancy of a color or whatever food is on her mind at that time, right? (laughs) So there's this kind of built-in way that the character herself can give you a pathway to a more nuanced and more maybe richer and more interesting mode of description Mm -hmm. of bodies. And especially because Malaya, you know, early on, especially, but even throughout, she is very sort of deliberately observing the bodies of the people around her, especially the women around her. Yes. Because she's trying to make sense of what her body means to everyone, right? Including these specific women. And so the kind of attention she's paying to her grandmother's body, for example, is always sort of about her trying to navigate and think through her own body. So for that reason too, right, she's going to think about it in ways that are very precise and very detailed and very much connected to 
what's on her mind or what matters to her, right? What her priorities might be. Oh, that makes so much sense. My work is a lot of interviewing people about their relationships with their bodies. And so often what comes up is the way a mother or a grandmother, sometimes a father or grandfather, but often a maternal figure, talked about the person I'm interviewing's body, but also talked about their own body. Their own. And even if it wasn't verbal, kids notice. They notice all of it. They see how we look in the mirror at ourselves. They see all the ways we, you know, hold ourselves or cover up or minimize and all of that. So I want to be careful to talk about this next part without spoilers, because I really want folks to read the book if they haven't already. But Malaya's body does change over the course of the book. I did not read this as a celebration of intentional weight loss. This is not like the cheesy, ugly girl gets her glow up moment at all, at all, at all. But I am curious to learn more about how you thought about this piece of things and why it felt important for her body to change or not change. My first thought in response to this is, it's true, right? Malaya's body changes over the course of the novel. In fact, it changes several times over the course of the novel, partly because she's growing up, Right. right? And she's also growing up within diet culture. One of the first changes we hear about is a moment where, she, again, she's eight years old. And she's recalling that the one time that she, you know, on those Weight Watchers program, lost two pounds and proudly reported the weight loss to her grandmother in a letter and then gains the weight back and is, you know, ashamed, right? Right. So, you know, very early on, we're actually seeing her awareness of fluctuations or changes in her body. And again, how much those changes mean to the people around her. And again, her task over the course of the novel is find a way to relate to her body as something that is for her, right? Rather than, you know, something to be commented on or policed or critiqued or even celebrated or valued for its weight changes by other people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Which is a longer way of saying bodies do change Mm -hmm. and they change and they change back and they age and they experience different degrees of mobility and, you know, all kinds, I mean, health, wellness, all of these things. What Malaya has to do is find a way to define and claim her body for herself, regardless of where it might be in terms of any of these factors, including weight, and regardless of what others may think of it for better or for worse. So where she ends up is a place where her body is in the process of a change. And the triumph here is that she is deciding that the weight doesn't matter, right? right? And that what matters is how her body feels to her, how she feels in her body. And she's just beginning, as the novel closes, I think she's just beginning to shift that locus of power again, right? To sort of define the body for herself and really recognize that her body is hers. It's for her to enjoy. It's for her to experience. And that its value is what it can do for her rather than how it might be evaluated by anybody else. And to me, that's the win, you know, in a world and in a life where we are told that our bodies are only supposed to change in one way. And then after that, they should never change again. And then freeze, yeah. That's right, just freeze. And I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? And yet, you know, it's one of these cultural stories that it really is, I mean, it's the underpinning of diet culture and arguably it's very much tied to patriarchy and, you know, heteronormative sort of ideas about family and certainly white supremacy. Malaya gets to say, regardless of whatever my body is doing, it's still mine. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. I love that. I think so much about how different all of our relationships with our bodies would be if we normalized change. 
with kids like right off the bat and for ourselves throughout life. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I'll just go there. I saw the the Barbie movie this weekend. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen it yet. Yeah. Um, Yeah. What'd you think? I mean, I loved it. Most of me really loved it. I mean, I also think it doesn't go far enough, but you know, for what it is, I love it. Yeah. But to me, the real heartbreak is Barbie land shows all these women, you know, president, Supreme Court, blah, 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 blah. But they are all unchanging and forever thin and beautiful, you know, like that they are all encased in that lack of change. Yeah. And her choice is then to go give up power in order to be a body that changes. That changes. That's interesting. There's some real, real heartbreak there. I'm curious what you thought about it now, if you saw it too. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I too had similar thoughts about, you know, the absence of an aging yeah. Barbie yeah. or kind of a, an aging process in Barbie land, there's that moment where there is a reference to the beauty of an older body yes. sort of toward the end of the film, which felt to me necessary. But as you said, perhaps not enough. You know yeah. what I mean? And similarly, too, I mean, like there was one fat Barbie and, you know, it was, and it's this whole Netflix trap of representation in a way, right? It's like, so you, you see an image is that really enough? Is seeing the image, is the kind of inclusion of this figure in the sort of, you know, landscape of Barbie land, is that enough? Or do we need to have more conversations mm-hmm. truly about like what that Barbie is doing, what that Barbie experiences? And as you're pointing out, like, what if that Barbie is not that Barbie? Right. What if that Barbie is a person, you know, in Barbie land or what a Barbie, I right. guess, could be any Barbie, right. right? Right. I see that as sort of a trap of representation, that it does sort of require us to imagine, you know, identity as something that's like fixed and static and, you know, completely disconnected from other aspects of identity. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of this is coming from my perspective as an intersectionality scholar, yes. right? Yeah. That like, well, it's know, a fascinating text for that. Barbie has always been like, like the way they branded the doll is that there's like one, yes. you know, there's a lawyer Barbie, there's a doctor, you know, like, yes. like she's only ever one thing, you know, black Barbie right. is not also astronaut Barbie or whatever. So I was like, well, on the one hand, it makes sense that Barbie land is built that way. And right. it's even, they even do further it, like, you know, black Barbie is president and yeah. fat Barbie is a lawyer. And like, there's some yeah. layering, but then, yeah, the fact that we're still frozen Yes. The only way women achieve this power is by upholding, like, majority of the beauty standards. And, like, maybe you're getting, right. like, one box checked. Right. I mean, that's not that different from how our world is right now. So yes. it's That's right. Yeah. So I'm still deciding whether I feel like that was, like, a very smart commentary on reality or yeah. something they could have taken further. And it may be both. You know what I mean? It may be both in some ways. I feel like a film like this, I have a lot of similar sort of questions and thoughts about the film. You know, it's trying to do so many things and appeal to so many audiences, yeah. right? And so it's an interesting, there's sort of like a having it both ways that's going on. And I have talked to women who I think don't usually feel like feminism is for them, who loved okay. the movie. Like my hairstylist was like, it changed me. Like it changed wow. me. And I wow. thought, okay, well then you know what? This is great. Like this, yeah. this brings this conversation to folks who really yeah. need to hear it. And then I also talked to interestingly another person my eyebrow waxer like, you know going to my appointments and then going yeah, to the movie just, all well, once. It's such a cultural touchstone <laughs> right, exactly. everyone is seeing you yeah. and she was like i hated the ending mm. i want the idea i don't want the reality i wanted her to just stay the idea of barbie and wow. i thought that was like sort of heartbreaking because what yeah. she was really saying is like i don't want her to age 
I don't want to age. Right. I don't want to change. I want right. to be able to be frozen in beauty like this. But I think you're right. It's like, yeah. And the fact that we are having conversation about patriarchy, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? About mm-hmm. sexism and patriarchy, even if that's where the conversation stops. Right. I think that's something, it's you know what something. I mean? You yeah. know, For a lot of people who recognize Barbie and who are invested in Barbie, but have not heretofore been invested in feminism, right. you know what I mean? That like, this is a moment where, you know, that's shifting for some people. I think that's important. Well, thank you for going on a Barbie tangent with me. We're also both wearing pink at the moment. Which <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what put it in my head. I was like, yeah, I've got pink funny. on the brain. So Mecca, what is your butter today? My butter is a book called Feeling by a phenomenal poet and scholar named Bettina Judd. Hopefully folks are familiar. Her first poetry collection was called Patient. And it was, you know, again, a beautiful collection, very much dealing with fatness and bodies and sort of mm-hmm. medical oppression. And feeling kind of extends some of those kind of questions and concerns. But she's talking about creative practice and Black feminist writing or Black women's writing. And it's a book that brings together like scholarly work and poetry. It's just gorgeous. And I highly, highly recommend. I am ordering immediately. This looks right. amazing. It's fantastic. That is a really good butter. My butter is also going to be a book today. I just finished reading Yellow Face. Have you read that mm. yet? I haven't read it. I have it yet. Really fun and really okay. smart and yeah. just like all of the things. Like, I mean, for those of us in publishing, it's really uncomfortably quite accurate. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's what I've heard. <laughs> really like, oh, okay. Yeah, she <laughs> like, gets it. She nails it. Oh, my God. So nails it. So yeah, it just captures all of the writing anxiety and the Twitter yeah. of it all and the, you know, the way all of the discourse happens. A Chinese woman writing in the voice of a white woman who is stealing yeah. from a Chinese woman, like the layers of it yeah. and the way That's she right. follows that through and just yeah. makes you, it, it's really, you know, really uncomfortable and important. So, and it's still a really fun novel. Can't wait to read it. Well, Becca, thank you again. This was absolutely wonderful. I love talking to you about all of this. Tell folks where they can follow you and how we can support your work. Yeah, so, you know, you can find me pretty much everywhere. I'm Mecca Jamila on all the socials. Instagram, Facebook, I'm Mecca Jamila Sullivan, author, Twitter, or X, I guess. I don't know how long I'll be there, but (laughs) for now, (laughs) I'm there as Mecca Jamila. I also am on TikTok. I have literally exactly one TikTok. It's me <laughs> doing the like, you know, unboxing of the novel. Right, right. So if you want to see that, it's there. But yeah, you could, I'm most active, active, I think, on Instagram. So that's a good place to find me. And yeah, I mean, in terms of supporting my work, you know, if you, the paperback of Big Girl came out in June. And so it has a really cool readers group guide. Nice. And so if you've already read it, but are thinking of sharing it with your reading group or with a classroom or any kind of community setting, definitely check that out. I love engaging with classes and and reading groups. So if you are sharing it with your reading group or your class, definitely, you know, you can contact me on my website, mechagrtelevin.com. Oh, that's amazing. That's so generous of you. Also, just because we have a lot of parents in the audience, what age would you recommend? Because I was thinking about this. I mean, I would think certainly like high school students would get a ton out of it, but I'm curious what age you think about for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I am not a parent, so that's a difficult question for me. What I can say is that 
I have heard from several parents who have decided to read it with their kids. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just think that's the ideal way. Hopefully that'll stimulate conversations about these larger questions of eating and diet culture and fat phobia and sort of body shame. And also I've heard a lot of parents say, mothers especially say that in that conversation, in the process of reading the book with some of their younger children, that they sort of uncovered some things about their own parenting or that helped them sort of think through their own parenting. Oh, that's so, cool. you know, I think at almost any age, maybe if you're sort of guiding the child through it by reading it together, mm. that to me would be an ideal way to approach that. That makes sense. That's great. Well, thank you again. This was really wonderful. Yeah, I had a great time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and tell a friend about this episode and leave us a rating or review. They really help other folks find the podcast. You can also consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. You also enable us to pay honorariums to our podcast guests to value their time and labor. Find out more by clicking the link in your episode description or go to virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soulsmith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting anti-diet body liberation journalism.